0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, Dialogues of Plato podcast. Today is February 14th, 2021. This podcast is audio recording of a live meetup group. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, Online Rebels Meetup. I am Eva Ellis. I will be coordinating this episode. Now I'd like to pass the screen and the microphone to James for today's discussion. James.
1: Well, Thank you, Evan. Good morning, everyone. I'm James Myers. I uh, am so happy to uh, facilitate these discussions and so happy to share in some ideas and thoughts about Plato. And I think it's, uh, as I keep saying, Plato, I think is very accessible in, in that the works that he does are in the dialogue form. And I think it's really in the dialogue that we have ourselves on what Plato has written that we can actually derive some knowledge of our own. And so I I learned things from these discussions and I hope our participants learn things. It's uh, great to see a number of our regular participants here and always great to see new participants. Uh, So whether you're new to Plato or whether you've got uh, an experienced background with Plato, I think uh, we wanna make this a welcoming place for uh, for everyone. As I said before, I, I kind of got really interested in Plato from the geometric angle. It was actually probably about six or seven years ago that I was watching a television show, uh, the How the Universe Works, and they were talking about black holes. I just kind of started to think, well, how are these things possible? Nobody knows how these black holes work. Uh, and I got really interested in physics, and it was that interest in physics, I think, that kind of put me into geometry. And I think, you know, today is maybe... A chance where we can really kind of explore the geometric angles of of Plato and and this second half of of the uh, Timaeus that we're going to discuss today that goes from uh, 48a to the end. Kind of an exceptionally challenging, maybe, um, very different kind of piece of philosophy. And so I kind of just wanted to maybe start by... I'll start with a question for everyone. But I I think, you know, as as we put up in in, in the meetup notice, what I thought would be helpful is, you know, after we start with the opening question, uh, maybe we do a review of what we discussed two weeks ago in the first half of the Timaeus, the part that goes up to 47E, because there's a particular train of logic there that I think may may be very helpful in understanding the second part uh, of the Timaeus. So so I just thought... uh, anybody who who speaks, um, you know please feel free to share your your experience and thoughts on Plato with us. And also I should just uh, say that the there's a Q and a window in the chat window that you can use. I I don't really I'm not able to really follow those in detail as I'm facilitating the discussion just because I'm focusing so much on the comments that people are making but Eva does monitor them and uh, if anybody sees anything in those chats that are of interest and you want to bring it forward to the uh, to the group as as a whole, please feel free to uh, to speak up and raise those issues uh, with your voice so so that's good and then we'll we'll do as we uh, have in the past uh, and I think it works fairly well is use the raise hands feature in in zoom to uh, if you'd like to, uh, to make a point, and I'll, I'll call on participants kind of in the order that the hands are raised. Uh, but I'll give preference to those who haven't spoken before first. So uh, looking forward to your comments. So I just thought, of, as I said, I kick off with a question, and then we'll go and, and maybe just do a review of the, the first part of the time that we did two weeks ago. And so the opening question is, we're looking now at at section forty eight a to the end. is this philosophy or is this logic or is this both? And perhaps maybe one of the most famous parts of or aspects of this section of the Timaeus is Plato's definition of the five regular solids, so the five uh, geometric shapes that are the only regular five geometric shapes in the universe. And I think this has had particular importance for the scientific community. but you know other than that, you know, what, what do you think of this part of, of the dialogue is, uh, and it's really a monologue at this point. Uh, what do you think of this? Is, is this philosophy? Is it logic? Is it both? Or is it neither? I just, I just throw the question out there, generally, what, what do people think? What, what, what struck you in this part of, of the Timaeus? Is there anything that struck you as particularly interesting or particularly odd? So I just put the question out there. What, what do you think? What does everybody think? Any particular thoughts on, on this first part? You know, it seems that that Plato here is spending some time uh, talking about physics. And certainly, you know, the way that we divided our discussion in the first part two weeks ago, we looked at the the creation of the intelligent part of the universe. So that that part of the universe that accommodates observers such as us. And in this part from 48A to the end, Plato is looking at the creation of the physical universe, so not the part of the observer that we looked at last time, but the part that is observed. And it seems that, you know, it it seems somewhat logical maybe that the two parts should be distinct from one another, right? So just wondering what you think of the observable part of the universe that he's describing in 48a to the end. So he he starts with really some parts of physics, and then he gets into physiology near the end. He's he talks about the creation of the human body and and the organs and all of that. So it seems very unusual. Have, has anybody encountered anything like this in a philosophical uh, discussion? Are there any precedents for this? Has have any have any other philosophers sort of taken this line of of thinking or reasoning?
2: Oh sure, Gregory, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm a scientist by by training, so I sort of felt this is a bit of more at home with me than, than the rest of other stuff. And I have a recent, a recently kind of reviewed, you know, the, the pre Socrates uh, kind of philosophical line of thinking, starting from searching for the, uh, you know, the, the universal origin, uh, the origin for the universe and other stuff. So I felt uh, um, this uh, is sort of capturing or summarization of what what they know or what Plato know. And not not necessarily, and the way to put it is, not necessarily what Plato think or what Plato discover. It really is, he's using other people's mouths To summarize, what is the state of understanding about uh, the universe? Because uh, the Greek started looking for uh, understanding of the universe starting with the mythology. The mythology really is their original understanding of the universe. And uh, the, the early philosophers come along, say, hey, you know, this has nothing to do with the gods. And really is, uh, you know, the nature nature display itself, they start to describe and understand these things uh, with, uh, you know, a lot of imaginations and, and postulate and speculate on that. And, and whenever that, they really feel challenging in a reasonable explanation, they will go back to gods. How gods think this way, so so they didn't really uh, do away with the gods. And the end of the day, the interesting thing here is that at some point, you know, this one god come along. I mean, the Greek the mythology was was a family or, or, or society of gods. They collectively do all these things. But now you have a single god. So, but anyway, I found this was a kind of a capturing of the understanding at the time. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, kind of introduce a a few kind of ideas of his own into it. But anyway, that's my my kind of uh, immediate response.
1: Well, thank you. Yes, and and, uh, you know, as I was reading this, it, it just seemed to me that the explanations that Plato is bringing forward, both in physics and in physiology at the end, Uh, they actually seem plausible. I mean, you know, according to what I know about physics, I'm not a I'm not a trained philosopher. I'm not a trained physicist. Uh, You know, it's all done through self-learning. But what I know, I mean, I I can't see anything that's really uh, a leap of logic, uh, anything that's really outside the realms or or boundaries of logic in this. And, And so uh, I, I just wanted to put that out there, you know, it just, uh, it just seems to me kind of a logical account of, of how the physical universe might be constructed.
2: I, I can make some comment on that. And I actually, yeah. actually recently just thinking things in this line and read a lot of uh, pre, pre-Socrates material as well as Aristotle's material. A logical wasn't really mature at, the, at the, you know, uh, Plato's time. It was uh, Aristotle who who picked up all the elements that are raised by, by Plato in his dialogues and then systematically organize and then put forward a theory of a logic. And from there on, I would say, there's a truly a logical thinking. But at mm-hmm. Plato, it was a combination of a dialectic, uh, reasoning and then some kind of a logical reasoning, but they don't quite figure it out, including, you know, with they even have problems still with with definition, but they still wanted to put forward a, a picture or understanding of the universe from like from forming formation of a star to the behavior of a human psychological uh, thing. So, so I think uh, it's 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 marvelous. I look at this, I say, gosh. The amount of knowledge that, that it's, I mean, I read also, I mean, okay, I'm talking about the rest of the, the dialogue, which you talk about the human the human behavior, disease, medicine, all that. And it's really incredible that the body of knowledge that, that I think collectively at the time people know, and which I'm a scientist, and I think it has a lot of a scientific flavor. The attitude is scientific. The content is, you know, in today's understanding, are uh, all wrong. But nevertheless, uh, the, the, the spirit is there. You know, they, they, they put forward this thing, oftentimes says probably, likely, and it's very tentative. They're not taking this as absolute knowledge or even correct knowledge. So the, the modesty, it, it really reflects uh, the, the kind of philosophical attitude or scientific attitude. And the science was really at its very infancy at that point in time. The word science really started to split from the word knowledge at that, about that time. Before, it was just mental knowledge. But starting from Plato, the science as a, as the art of searching knowledge start to appear. I find this very interesting. Well, thank you. I mean, it's,
1: and certainly what you say about knowledge is uh, Very central to Plato's whole thesis. And we started looking at his idea of knowledge uh, in our very first dialogue that we looked at back in the, I think it was late summer. We were we talked about the Mino, and knowledge is the account of the reasons why, and knowledge is recollection, which is a theme that keeps coming up in in Plato's dialogues. And so, um, you know, knowledge is something that's continuously derived. And so Let's look at what you were saying, Greg. In terms of uh, you know whether this is plausible or not, uh, certainly a good lead into the first half that uh, I was hoping we could review. And I thought maybe this is a good point to do that. Um, I've got uh, I've got Joel with his hand raised, and I don't know if JK whether you had your hand raised earlier or not. But if you feel like jumping in, um, Joel, did you? Would you like to say something, or no? Okay. Um, all right, or JK, did you have anything to say? No. Okay. Well, why don't we? Why don't we? This would be a good time, I think, maybe just to take a look at the the first half. So, Eva, if you could put up that slide, the review slide that uh, that I prepared. This is uh, posted on the shared drive, and this is meant to really just review what I saw as the logical flow in the first half of uh, of the Timaeus, and starting with twenty eight A, and. We can go as as quickly or as slowly as everyone participating would like with this. Um, but I just thought it would be useful to get these ideas out, starting with this very first point in 28A, because there's a particular logical flow that goes from 28A to 32B, which I think is is interesting and will help us maybe to understand the uh, the second part, maybe with kind of a richer context. So. At 28a, Plato says, or through the character Timaeus, uh, says that we need to make at the outside a distinction between two states of existence and the way we comprehend or, or our knowledge of those two states of existence. So the first state is that which always is and has no becoming. And there I've underlined the word is because I think that's something that we maybe should discuss and understand what is meant by the word is. So the first state is that which always is and has no becoming. And the word becoming, there's a footnote in the the text that I'm using, in the translation that I'm using, that uh, ties that to the Greek word Genesis. And the character Timaeus says that this state is comprehended by a reasoned account. So our knowledge of this state, we have to use a reasoned account to understand uh, this this state of being. So that state which always is and has no becoming. So it never changes, it's unchanging. And then the second distinction is, uh, or the second state is that which becomes, but never is. So we've got a different word here, becomes. So the first state is that which is, the second state is that which becomes. And the second state is comprehended by sense perception, which is unreasoning. So we have different ways of deriving knowledge. The first state, we derive our knowledge with the reason to count. And the second state, we derive our knowledge by using our senses. And our senses themselves don't reason. It's our brain that reasons, right? Uh, so I thought this was an interesting place to start with in terms of the, of the logical flow of the construction of the first part of, of the Timaeus. And again, that was, that's the part where uh, Plato describes how intelligence is embedded in the universe. And from there, and in, if anybody feels like jumping in with a question or a comment anytime, feel free to to do that. I'll watch for the hands uh, being raised here. Um, The second part uh, of the logical flow, I think, is also in 28a. So this is in the second paragraph in in the slide here. And that's where Timaeus says that that which becomes, so he's talking now about the second state of existence, that which becomes requires a cause and I've underlined the word there. So it requires a cause for its genesis. And it says, it is impossible for anything to come to be without agency of cause, which is the reason why. So we have this state of becoming and the cause is the reason why it has become the way it has. And think back about the first paragraph, uh, the one that we looked at just above, that the state that always is and never becomes requires a reasoned account to, to understand it. So this is a particularly important, I think, part in the logical flow. This initial distinction that we make between two states of existence and the way that, we, the way that our knowledge is derived of those two states. And then the logical flow, uh, I think, next goes to uh, paragraph three here, which is at 29E. And uh, uh, Joel, I see your hand up. I'll just I'll just make this point, and then we'll we'll go to you, Joel. Uh, so the third point is the reason why the universe of becoming. So the, again, this is the second state of being was framed by the framers or craftsmen's goodness. Uh, one who is good can never become jealous of anything. And then I just put in square brackets just my understanding of jealousy. Uh, as being desire for that which one does not have, and the framer being all that is, has no need for anything else. Um, So, so far we've got three steps in the logical process, and I've got two hands up, so we'll take uh, Joel Schuster first, and then Joel Garland second, Joel Schuster.
3: Um, Thank you very much James. You know, uh, you've gone through three uh, steps and I must confess that I am lost at the first step. And here's, here's the, the nature of my confusion. So 28a, at the outset, distinction is made between two states of existence and comprehension. So I'm trying to visualize this in a kind of a chart of some sort. So are we really talking about two states for each of existence and comprehension? and therefore we're talking about a matrix of four or is it just two that we're talking about so maybe that was clear to everyone else mm-hmm. or maybe maybe i'm just so picky that that nothing could could <laughs> satisfy me but mm-hmm. i wonder if anybody else has any queries about that
1: mm-hmm. interesting question especially when you think that uh, a state of existence Often has a beginning and an end. so each state would require kind of two points in it, beginning and an end. So if there's two states, then maybe there is a total of four points of comprehension, especially when we get time into the picture, I think might be might be a good question. but so it's a good question, joel. thank you and And if anybody else has any thoughts on that one, um, it would be good to understand. But I think overall the idea here, at least my understanding of the idea is that Uh, is that there is the universe itself, which I think uh, Plato is saying always is, is never in a state of becoming, because it just is the sum total of everything that exists. And then there is within it, the state of becoming. uh, And that state of becoming is constant and never reaches an end. And so uh, the state of becoming never is. Is is kind of like an end state. Uh, that, that's the way I'm understanding it. But uh, anybody else who has thoughts on that, uh, please do let us know.
4: Uh, and then the other Joel. Joel? Uh, yes, please. My question was exactly the same as the other Joel on 28A. I just mm-hmm. wanted uh, some clarification on the second sentence that uh, saying that it's impossible for anything to come to be without agency of cause, which is the reason why. So uh could I get just clarification on what exactly is agency and is that um is that discounting the existence of like an infinite or eternity for example?
1: Mm-hmm. Well good question. I mean I think agency is the is the source of the cause. That would be my understanding of, of the word. Um, and here I'm actually thinking, you know, there's a little bit of physics here, and I, I think I'm seeing in this, in this other part of 28A, Joel is just referred to the the second paragraph here on the slide on the uh, on the screen, uh, and talking about the cause of uh, of coming to be or becoming, uh, and in this I'm actually seeing Newton's first law of motion. You know, Newton's first law of motion. Basically says nothing happens unless there's a force applied to to cause it to happen, and certainly that would that's a that's a universal physical law, and and here in this part of the Timaeus we're talking about physics, so um, so I think it's you know what the, the point that Plato's making here is um, that something doesn't become unless a force is acted on it on it and causes it to to come to be. Uh so any anybody else who has any thoughts on that, by all means uh let us know. So these are these are two um I think these are two really key starting points to the understanding of of what Plato is trying to say in the Timaeus. Um so we've got you know this these two states of, of existence. We've got a cause for the state of becoming, uh, we've got the reason why being goodness. Um and uh, before I go on to the fourth point, I've got J.K., J.K.?
5: Yeah, we talk about the cause, if there is, if this, if there is, is always, you know, is, then that would be the cause, right? Cause of itself, right? Right. But then he's also pausing that there is a becoming. Right. Uh, becoming is, is never is, but what is the cause of the the becoming? Mm
6: -hmm. Is that
5: the is? So, so how do you know which one came first, the is or is or the becoming? I mean, it, it isn't, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of separating the two, two ideas um, that the, um, you know, which one is the cause of itself or cause of of everything. He's, he's, He's saying he's kind of like privileging, is as the cause, right? Um but then, then how do you get becoming if, if that's the case? And so it's just like Parmenides saying that there is no change at all. It's an illusion, right? There's only is. Mm. And he's de- denying what Heraclitus is saying that uh, that there is only becoming. The, the b- becoming is the cause of of what is and, and is is never just is it's always also part of the bec- becoming.
2: Sorry, I couldn't see the raised hand in my side. I just uh, felt that, like, uh, could that necessity be an agent? Like, uh, in, in the way I read, it seems that necessity is a before the universe, it has always been there. And, uh, or could that be also God? It seems that necessity, God uh, exists already at the same time, along with the four elements. Right.
5: Well, the, the, the question is, is necessity is which is which is which always is right and you could say that's God but is uh is necessity becoming
6: mm-hmm. that
5: could be also that also could be you know you could say that could be the being right mm-hmm. that 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 could be the cause of everything. Yeah so you you can't really it doesn't make sense for him to you know for one to privilege you know is mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So yeah, if because that's how you know Par- Parmenides uh, was uh, was the one who posited that, and the um, student was Zeno, who came up with these paradoxes mm-hmm. that don't really make sense. You, you get caught in this this reasoning of paradox, and it doesn't come out. It doesn't make sense. You know, it it denies it denies your your empirical experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see that what's there. And science is based on empirical knowledge too, right? Not just reasoning.
1: You you raised, I mean, it's a very good question, JK. And I think it really relates to, perhaps in part, to our understanding of the words is and becoming. Um, you know, and, and I think we need to explore maybe the definitions of those words. Uh, certainly is, I think it's a very important question in, the, in the logic, Is is the meaning of those two words um you know as as i said i i think i see the the state of is as kind of an eternal unchanging state that's that's the end the, the final state there is no more becoming once you reach is you know it's like you start at a certain point you go out as far as you can and that's what is right. like there's nothing beyond that uh and and i think you know as the train of logic goes down further down this page we haven't got there yet but but plato's makes the point that there is only one universe right um and so that that is i think kind of like the the final where there is nothing else um that's the way i see it but um i just wanted to go to jane who's who has her hand up and and uh, jane what would you like to say hello oh. hello hello
0: Hi. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, so I just wanted to share my interpretation of how I understood the um, is and becoming. So when when I was reading throughout the dialogue, I would sort of find these, I, I, I guess, like opposite, uh, like opposite definitions that seem to be one referring to like being and the other one to becoming. So for example, um, I I noticed that there was, for example, the the pair of eternal and changing. So for me, being is the eternal part and changing is becoming, and that makes sense. Uh, So, and when they were discussing the creation of the universe, how I understood it is that the eternal being is what created a sort of copy or imitation of itself which became the changing the becoming and this sort of made sense to me because later on um when the um, the, the sort of creation of time was discussed um i i, I wrote this out eternal image moving according to number uh, this image is called time so sort of the the changing the becoming is something that is just an imitation of the eternal of the being and and we see that sort of in the perception of time where we're given something that is eternal that is a sort of image so the sort of becoming or changing that is moving according to numbers and that is what we perceive as time and some of the other things that i've linked to being and becoming is that being is is reason it's intelligence it's truth it's something that is undividable. And the changing, the becoming, it is sense, opinion, belief, the dividable, something that could be divided into um, different separate parts. I don't know how much this makes sense, but this is sort of how I interpreted it.
1: Mm. Well, thank you, Jane. I I think you you really hit on a number of very key points and and the words you used, I think are very important. This idea, this, you know, this state of is maybe being the state that is not divisible. It, It can it cannot be further distributed because it is, uh, it is the sum total of everything. Um, and meanwhile, we've got this this state of becoming, which is the physical state, uh, which is the state that's always changing, right? And 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 it is not a permanent state; it's always subject to change. You know, and you mentioned time. I mean, time, you know, consists of past, present, and future. But the present is the state of what Plato calls elsewhere. I don't think he uses the term in this dialogue, but he calls elsewhere the state of coming to be uh, in the present. So the present is the kind of the undefined state that is always subject to change. And we need that. We we don't want to be stuck in a static universe. You know, the present is our dynamic potential. You know, the the present is the state that's always coming to be. This is the the point in time, that kind of middle point in time where we have the the ability to be agents, the ability to cause things to happen, uh, and so I really like the way you put that, Jane. Um, so yeah, just wondering what others uh, think about this. I have Wayne and then Alex. Wayne,
5: yes. Uh, uh, full disclosure: I've been cheating a bit. I, I've been uh, using a public uh, a book by Cornford, uh, Plato's cosmology, mm-hmm. and in regard to this, I hope this is on the right uh, area. Uh, I'm just going to quote from a, a section that I think applies to this. It is true that in such becoming, something new is always appearing, something old passing away. But the process itself can be conceived as going on perpetually without beginning and end, beginning or end. For this perpetual becoming, the sort of cause needed, is not a cause that will start the process at some moment and complete it at another a cause that can sustain the
3: process and keep it going endlessly.
1: Well, thank you, Wayne. And, you know, actually that idea of something that has no beginning and no end may be very helpful to understanding the nature of of the first state of existence that's spelled out in 28A, that state that always is and has no becoming. Uh, You know, and, and as we're going to get into some geometry, I think today, uh, that which has no beginning and no end. There's one particular geometric figure that kind of strikes me as relevant to that, and that would be the circle. And certainly, Plato makes the point uh, in the beginning part of the Timaeus uh, about circles and spheres. Um, so, so thank you. Uh, I think that, that which uh, has no beginning and no end, I think, is very helpful to understanding that first state of existence. Um, Alex, and then J.K. Alex.
6: Yeah, thanks, James. Um, uh, Thanks for the meeting. Hi, everybody. Um, Yeah, just a quick point, I guess, uh, echoing what um, previous couple of speakers have said about these two opposites being and becoming. Um, So one reading of Plato that I like, uh, it kind of makes sense. So it may be, uh, you know, people uh, could disagree with it, I guess, but it's sort of um, a kind of a standard reading, I guess. That Plato, in a way, uh, brings together Parmenides and Heraclitus. Uh, And so, you know, uh, he sees, I guess, those two as kind of extremes, you know, Heraclitus being mostly about becoming, Parmenides being mostly about being. And uh, I think what Plato wants to do is take both of those principles, but definitely put them in a hierarchy, right? So, uh, being is definitely higher than becoming. And uh, I think, as as the quote uh, the previous uh, speaker read uh, said, um, uh, being uh, you know uh, sets this sets becoming into a kind of eternal motion, or or perpetually kind of sustains the becoming of the uh, of the physical world. And um, yeah, so there's it's you know so there's a kind of synthetic or a kind of synthesis, I guess, that Plato is uh, creating here. Um, so I think that's an interesting way of reading it because um, I guess maybe he saw himself as correcting the mistakes of those earlier philosophers because they were so kind of um, one-sided in a way. And it's uh, what's amazing about, about Plato is how many different things show up in his philosophy, right? It's not just one idea, but it's such a mixture of um, um, of perspectives.
1: Well thank you Alex and and certainly I like that idea of synthesis and uh you know I think what you said kind of goes back to what Joel G said earlier is you know is the uh, is the state or maybe the question that Joel G asked earlier which is you know is that state of is the unchanging state of is is it the cause of everything um and that's something I think that we can explore. So um, I've got a few speakers. I've got J.K. and then Joel G. and then Jane. J.K.
5: Yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, I agree with what Alex said. But the so he, uh, the idea of the hierarchy, you know, um, and you could see that um, the hierarchy of being, uh, you know, you could see that in his uh, political uh, writings and, and social philosophy. So. So he's kind of like, um, you know, um, emphasizing the the importance of the of the is and and um, and the becoming becomes an illusion. So that's where he gets this this hierarchy, you know, that the things in the world of becoming is really um, just an imitation, you know, a, a replica of uh, a, a uh, of the of the forms, right? The forms of the being, and so 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 he's emphasizing the is, and and he's also, of course, he's bringing in clients but uh, the the ideas of uh, that comes from Heraclitus is sort of demoted to this uh, the material world, as if that really uh, you know is not uh, as real as the as the is of the of the forms. So. So you could you know so and this circle of this idea of the circle could be also a a, a whether true or not you know for, for 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 people for rationalists who who create these circles uh, of uh, eternal being is, is is their creation out of their their you know out of their you know reasoning you know their 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 it's it's, it's the power of reason. Reason to, to create these kind of uh, their notions of what what is uh, what is being what is real, and that that I guess after Plato that uh, that continue on, uh, you know, and um, probably you know, like I guess Parmenides would, would you know would be the the first that did that I guess you
1: know. mm-hmm. Thank you, and. Um yeah I mean definitely um, you use the word hierarchy, which I uh, struck a, a chord in me you know to this this state of is this eternal state uh, would seem to be the first order in the hierarchy, and then becoming is is what comes next. Uh, so I like that idea joel G uh,
4: yes, please. so uh, something that I would like to be corrected on if um Mistaken here, but the entire impression I'm getting from 28A all the way down to 31A is a sense that um, both uh, the universe and nature as a whole is in some sense rational and intelligible, created by this uh, this what's called as a craftsman. So, um, my, my question is where does, uh, what, what James, you're fond of saying a lot is uh, the, where does, where does the uncertainty principle come in or chaos theory, um, come into play this idea of randomness, so to speak that can break apart and create inertia or just decay through all of that. What, where do, is there any sense of just sort of this random chaos that plays a part in this as a whole? So where, where does that fit in this?
1: Thank you, Joel. And, and certainly, you know, I think that's I don't think we would want to live in a universe that's static because then we wouldn't have any agency or we wouldn't able to be co- We wouldn't able to cause anything. Um, so, you know, there's a well-established principle of physics, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that says that um, you know that that there is uncertainty in the universe. And you know, as troubling as uncertainty can be to us and to philosophers and to scientists, um, you know it's perhaps a a very fortunate thing for us that there is because when when there's uncertainty, we're able to cause things to become. Um, and so I thought I, I liked the question. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I think, again, if we look at geometry and we think about the second part of the Timaeus that, you know, we've read today, and I just, I don't want to, I think it's important to look at the the first half in this logical flow, but maybe I'll start to tie some comments into the second half. Um, you know, in, in terms of geometry, there is certainty in the rational uh, parts or the rational proportions. And Plato makes the point that everything is proportion. Um, But then there's what we call irrational, or what I think the ancient Greeks called incommensurable. And in the the incommensurable portions, uh, there is no certainty. Uh, There there is no finality in the incommensurable, um, uh, in, in the mathematics and the geometry of incommensurability. And so this point about proportion uh, I think is very important, and then Jane reminded us uh, that time, uh, in Plato's words, in the first half is an eternal image um, moving according to number, uh, and so numbers can be rational and they can be irrational, uh, commensurable or incommensurable, and so that's how I would, that's how I would see it. But uh, I think we can certainly take others' uh, impressions, and so I will move to Jane with that, Jane.
0: This may be a little bit off topic at this point, but I'm just wondering if um, anyone saw a sort of like, um, in, in the terms of being and, and becoming, if anyone saw like the sort of preconception of the later on idealism and materialism and philosophy. Hopefully that makes sense. But yeah, because at, at one point I think I saw that there was a line being drawn in the dialogue of the eternal or the being being something non-matter and the changing and becoming being something that is matter. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering if anyone had similar impressions.
1: I think so. that's a, it's a good question. And it may relate to this idea of the distinction, which I think was drawn particularly in the fido, which we discussed, I think that was back in November or December, uh, of the, the contrast between the visible universe, which is really, I think the physical universe and the invisible universe. Uh, and I think maybe by the, by the end of our session today, we might get to that. And, And so certainly a good question to ask Jane and if anybody has any thoughts on that by all means. Um, so I just wanted to move forward with the logical flow here and maybe just go to the fourth point. And so, this is where we're now at 30A in the first half that we looked at two weeks ago. And the point is made that wanting everything to be good and nothing to be bad, so far as that was possible, the framer brought all that was visible, uh, and I put in square brackets my understanding to be that which is in physical existence, uh, from a state of discordant and disorderly motion into a state of order, for the reason that order is in every way a greater degree of good than disorder. And so it's tying this idea of goodness um, and and order together. And order maybe might help to answer or provide some insight into Joel G's question about uh, certainty versus uncertainty. And so where there's uncertainty, perhaps order is something that really helps us to understand, at least to set our paths according to some sort of order um rather than chaos i think chaos is the word that you use joel and, and i think you know certainly none of us likes chaos um, chaos is a little bit stressful and so to the extent that there was order created in the universe i, I kind of like that that connection to what you said um, and then we go on to the fifth point which uh, i saw in the logical flow which is at 30b um, so in the, natural, in, a, in the naturally visible, in square brackets, again, physical realm, things that possess intelligence as a whole must always be better than things that are unintelligent as a whole, which is actually good for us, I think, right? Um, therefore, it is impossible for anything to possess intelligence apart from the, square bracket, invisible, soul. So here, here's where we bring in the idea of soul, the only domain of intelligence intelligence being invisible was put in soul and soul was put in body being visible so and we've talked about this before I think this idea that each one of us is really a combination of visible and invisible you know so when I look in the mirror I see the visible me um you know kind of odd looking you know I've got body head limbs you know I I know that there's the visible um Part of me, but the invisible part of me is that which animates me, or you know maybe what Plato called the soul uh, and that I can't see in the mirror it, that only comes to me in my in my comprehension or sense of meaning, and that's the invisible part um, so I, I think this is a pretty powerful uh, piece of logic here in in number five here at thirty b this idea of intelligence being kind of the the paramount um Concern, I think, uh, or, the, or the the realm of meaning uh, in the universe, and then we to the sixth point in the logical flow. I think is at thirty C, and this is where the the point is made that beauty is likeness to that which is complete, and so the word here, complete, and the word beauty, I think, are are tied together. And uh, again, just to bring it back to that point about jealousy, uh, you know, and this, I think, is the framer being all that is and having no need for anything else, wasn't jealous. Um, And the universe comprising beauty resembles more closely than anything else, that single intelligent living thing, again, with that capital L, capital T that we talked about two weeks ago, which comprehends within itself all intelligent living things. So the universe itself is a capital L, capital T living thing, and then we are among the intelligent living things within that single living thing. So that's the, the sixth point in the, in the logical flow. And then the seventh point uh, I saw at 31a, um, there is but one universe, which is not a container of separate parts, but rather is an integrated whole in its own derivative. Um, and, you know, I see in this, and I put in square brackets, that intelligent thereby persists in a continuum. And, you know, again, I think that's maybe something that's good for us as intelligent beings, is that there is this continuity of intelligence. Intelligence never breaks uh, in this in this uh, concept. And then just to kind of end our review of the first part of the time as at 31C to 32B. Uh, there being but one living thing that requires a physical form for its state of becoming. And again, we go back to that distinction that's made at 28a, that, you know, the distinction between the state that always is and never becomes and the state that becomes but never is. um, Consisting uh, in the invisible soul and the visible body, there must be some bond of unity between visible and invisible. And so then there's a few sub points made here. Eva, if you could just scroll down just a little bit on the, uh, on the screen here. Um, the first point is that the, the best bond is one that really and truly makes a unity of itself together with the things bonded by it. And this is in the nature of things uh, best accomplished by proportion. And so there's that word proportion, proportion being ratio. Uh, I know some people last time uh, in the chat window were talking about the golden ratio, which maybe we'll have a chance to explore because that's a mathematical and geometric concept. Um, The 2nd subpoint here, the bond itself is a third element between the two things that it unites. uh, And then I just put in square brackets in proportion with which the bond is best accomplished is both mathematical and geometric in its nature. And then uh, lastly, or not lastly, but nearly lastly. So there's this quote, so if the body of the universe were to have come to be as a two-dimensional plane, interesting that Plato uses that word, two-dimensional plane, uh, a single middle term would have sufficed to bind together its conjoining terms with itself. As it was, however, the universe was to be a solid, and the footnote in my translation says solid is a cubic or a cube structure, and solids are never joined together by just one middle term but always by two. Uh, And that brings to mind the Euclidean axiom to me. Things that are like one thing are like each other. And the real trick is to get that to happen in three dimensions. So very interesting here. And I just say this as somebody who has uh, spent a lot of time with geometry. Very interesting here that Plato would talk about two-dimensional planes. Um, You know, certainly Euclid was... uh, was you know i think at the time obviously very well known for his two-dimensional geometry and axioms Uh, but plato i think was all about taking that into three dimensions Um, had a very interesting discussion with somebody recently uh, you know of a scholarly background who who thought that uh, plato's geometry was really no more than what a high school student now would know uh and I'm not so sure about that. Uh, you know, I think Plato was, you know, very keenly a geometer. In fact, you know, that sign above the door of his academy, let no one who was bereft of geometry enter these doors, is a very key, key thing. And so I think it's it's very important to understand the place of geometry in Plato's philosophy. Uh, and maybe that's where we kind of move into the into a more in-depth discussion of the second part of the Timaeus, is, is just kind of, you know, and I'll put the question out there, you know, what is the what is the role of geometry in philosophy? Is there, um, is it, or is its role in logic and therefore is, is the role of logic to inform philosophy? And so maybe I just put that out there, but uh, if anybody has any questions on this particular slide before we leave it, I just wanted to make sure again that we understood kind of the logical flow that led leads to this second half of uh, of the time that uh, that we're looking at today.
4: Um, Joel. Yes, please. I very much want to just piggyback off of what you said quickly about uh, how you came across that observation on whether or not uh, Plato knew a little more, a little less than grade 12 geometry. Uh, Like I, I came across that too, not too long ago. And For the most part, I just want to acknowledge like that still to me is so incredibly impressive, especially just going back barely two, three hundred years ago where the majority of people around the world were illiterate. So if you like, like it's grade 12 geometry is not easy. So like that's still incredibly impressive in my books, especially if you want to take it like a couple thousand years ago. No Mm -hmm. calculators, no telescopes, no microscopes. So and I'm still blown away by that regardless. So. That's just a quick shout out for Plato.
1: Well, thank you, and and certainly, you know the. I, I guess maybe there's a an assumption. Maybe this person I was speaking to assumed that knowledge is always now greater than it has always been in the past, um, and I think that's a natural assumption, you know, because we we think that we learn new things each day, so we we think that knowledge is always adding. Uh, adding to that, which which existed before, and so knowledge is always increasing. I guess it's kind of maybe a natural assumption that we make, but it's actually a point that Plato makes at the beginning of the Timaeus with his story about uh, about Atlantis and his story about the destruction of civilizations. So, as you remember our discussion two weeks ago, at the beginning of the Timaeus, Plato talks about how there have been these planet destroying events through history. And he talks specifically about fires and floods. And we know now that uh, there was an asteroid strike just off the uh, coast of the Yucatan Peninsula that, uh, you know, it's pretty widely accepted, wiped out the dinosaurs. It caused a planetary wide fire that destroyed every living thing on this planet, pretty much every living thing on this planet. Uh, And we know that there was a flood and we know that there was an ice age and Plato makes reference to fires and floods and the destruction of knowledge and the destruction of memory right at the beginning of the Timaeus. And I think that ties to his story of Atlantis, the very story famous story of Atlantis at the beginning. Um, And so, you know, this is, this is an important question. Does knowledge always increase in a straight line uh, and is it never broken, or do these events sometimes happen that, that break knowledge? And so I just kind of wonder whether uh, you know there was some knowledge um, of geometry and other things uh, back then that has been lost over the the ages from the events like like these planet-wide destruction events, or like uh, you know the the dark ages, you know. All of these things where knowledge gets lost or used in different ways, it's a very important thing to understand the nature of knowledge I think and so you know it's uh, I, I think you know what I, what where I wanted to start I think the the second half is to understand the the nature of logic and and the idea of shape so you know, I, I had an argument with somebody. It wasn't it didn't start off being an argument. It became an argument, quite heated, actually. Um, and this person who had studied logic um, was adamant that uh, there are multiple systems of logic, uh, and the systems don't need to tie together. And I, you know, being you know naive and not really trained in these things, I just naturally seem to me that there should be one system of logic to which all systems of logic eventually have to um, eventually have to boil down to eventually have to relate to, Um, you know, a a single and I guess maybe it's getting to this idea that's Plato's talking here, about there's one universe, if there's one universe, does there have to be one system of logic? And you know, maybe I'll just put that question out there in terms of the second half of the Timaeus. Do we see that, you know, that this universe that's being constructed, um, the physical universe, the observable universe in the second half of the Timaeus starting at 488a, is it a single system of logic that Plato is describing here? Or are there multiple systems of logic? You know, for example, Plato talks about uh, the physics of of you know the components of earth, water, air, and fire, um, and then he talks about physiology, he talks about the actual construction of the human body are these you know is the construction of the human body, for example, working with one system of logic which is different from the physics of earth and water and and air um, and is that different from the logic that governs the intelligence that's embedded in the universe in the first part of of the time ants so i'm just wondering if there's any thoughts on on you know whether there is one single system of logic in the universe or multiple systems of logic in the universe and i don't know if that if that question relates to the nature of reasoning itself you know I, maybe maybe it's that i tend to approach things from an inductive reasoning approach where i'm looking you know again being naive and not trained in these things i'm looking at the end result and i'm working my way back to what would have been the beginning and maybe that's kind of in my understanding that could be like the account of the reasons why you know when you start with the end and you work your way back to the why that really existed at the beginning um and maybe, you know, maybe this person I was arguing with was taking a deductive approach, starting at you know what was supposed to be the first principle and then deducing the outcomes from that first principle. But I think the problem maybe goes back to 28A in the Timaeus, where Plato's saying that that which is, you you cannot find the first principle of that uh, because it always is. There is no becoming in that. Uh, and you need that reasoned account to find your way. Back to that point. So, just I just wanted to throw that out there because I think you know the second half of the Timaeus is one that's very much related to logic, and you know uh, I think logic to me is a single thing. But I, I I don't know. I as I said, I'm not trained in these things, and I just wonder what people's perceptions of logic are. um Jk, what your thoughts?
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure uh, about the logic. I just wanted to you know uh, see. If um, I'm on the right track of understanding what logic is. Is it like uh, you mentioned the inductive and deductive logic? Is that different from mathematical logic when you do mathematics? Are you using a, a different kind of logic uh, or is similar to uh, inductive and deductive? And also, uh, you know, um, Aristotle's logic of, of uh, you know, A is A equals A, um, that kind of, um, you know, non contradiction logic of the um, you know the principle of uh, the excluded middle um, you know are are there uh is is there a logic that's different from uh, the uh, non contradictory principle of lo- logic mm-hmm. um, some later philosophers i think uh, say that there is you know um i um, you know russell's um idea of the um uh, the paradoxes that he comes up with you know in logic um are, are those um
1: is that a separate kind of logic
3: mm-hmm.
1: good question so um you know certainly in mathematics um you know i think i think you know it's it would seem to be non-contradiction is required in that context um you raise a question of the excluded middle, which I think is very important to understand in the context of, you know, both Plato and Aristotle, and maybe their differences in approach. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I to me, just again, being naive, but just based on the definition of the word, logic can't contradict itself. I mean, that would seem to be a requirement. And so in the construction of the universe, if the universe is a logical thing, um, and the logic of the universe includes intelligence, which operates with uncertainty, but it also includes the certainty of physics, then somehow the logic would need to tie together this uncertainty of intelligence and certainty of physics, uh, the uncertainty of the invisible and the certainty of the visible. Um, And I think that's an important point. So thank you for that question. Let's see what others think. Jane and then Alex. Jane?
0: James, I, I really liked uh, what, what you just talked about, and I've been thinking about it for a very long time. I haven't like all my, um, all, my all my studies go back to soft scientists, uh, sciences. That's why I think I'm a little I, I'm a little kind. It's, it's kind of difficult for me to handle like the more hardcore logic type of thing so um, math and physics are, are definitely not my my strong points i have very very uh very bad knowledge of them but um i always i always ask that same question is there w- like one sort of unifying logic that exists because formal logic definitely uh it definitely doesn't help in in a lot of things in life and 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 in like in specific sciences but i, I found that there's a little bit of sort of closure in dialectics where where sort of the logic of things means that you have something uh, where, you, where you have one part A and then you have one part B and the B is contradicting to the A, but there is this tie-in element of, of, of C that makes it all fit together. So sort of everything that we have in our life consists of things that contradict each other. And like, it's it's kind of really hard for me to word because this is a very raw thought that i've been having um like the idea of of time that's in this dialogue of where you have eternity and the way that i saw it um it, it put in a very rough way is that uh becoming is sort of like eternity being stretched out and we're just getting these snapshots of eternity and that is what is becoming and that is what we see and that is what we work with but there's this like long stretching eternity that has no beginning or ending. And there's no way that we can get all of its snapshots. And that's why sort of we're looking at things and we're making sense in, in one field or another field. But when we try to make like the big picture fit together, it's not working out. And I don't think at least to, to me, like on my very um, novice and unknowing level, it feels like things are not fitting in. Not because there is no greater logic, but we just don't know it or we don't have those snapshots Mm -hmm. to make it all fit together, if that makes any sense. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, Jane, you you spoke beautifully there. I think that, uh, you know, this idea of these snapshots and what you said earlier, you know, using Plato's quote of uh, time being a moving image of eternity, I think is so key. And actually, as you were saying that, there, there was an image that came to my mind and I, you know, being kind of like novice, like you said, you are. I mean, I, I'm a novice too in these things. I'm not a trained mathematician or, or geometer. It's just what I've, you know, logic that I've used over the years to arrive at these points. Um, you know, as as you were talking about these snapshots, I was getting this picture in my mind, and I tend to think in pictures because it, it helps. I was getting this picture in my mind of a circle that's opening and closing, and opening and closing. Uh, and, as that circle broadens, our knowledge increases as it narrows our knowledge decreases, our focus increases. Um, and you know it, you also mentioned you know this idea of contradictions because you know Plato talks a lot not just in this dialogue but in in other dialogues about opposites uh, and I've got a little you know image that we can look at near the end of this session uh, about opposites uh, and this fact that uh, you know logic you know, has extremes at any points. And the use of the word extremes is something that is uh, very common in a lot of Plato's dialogues. And so we always need to be able to find the extremes of of what we're looking at, whether it's, you know, just a very simple piece of logic or a very broad eternal logic. Um, and so I think there's, you know, maybe the geometry really helps us in understanding Uh, the extremes and the relativity of our own perception to those extremes. Uh, So very important points that you raise and certainly this this idea of the contrast between extremes and the contradiction of opposites uh, is something that uh, I think is definitely in the realm of intelligence uh, to comprehend and comprehension of the eternal, as as Plato was saying at 28a, is by the account of of, uh, the reasons why um jk your thoughts yeah
5: is there a difference between the logic that is used by certain philosophers as a as a tool but when they're really doing philosophy in the in the uh, search for wisdom that they're that they are doing something a uh, thinking uh, a doing a process of thinking that is that is beyond logic you know as you would think as logic that's used in science and, uh, and, uh, and some other fields of, uh, you know, philosophy, but it's philosophy is at a higher, at a level that is, uh, you know, uh, outside of this kind of logic. And there are some philosophers that don't claim not to use logic at all, maybe, you know, in in their philosophizing.
1: Oh, I I really like that question, JK. It's, uh, it makes me think of that word beauty that Plato used in uh, in that review of the logic that we just talked about, and is there a logic to beauty? Uh, and that I really I don't know. I, I don't think that there is necessarily. And maybe this is this concept of uh, you know while you know while great thinkers like Einstein, for example. Uh, Define the logic of the physical universe. Like there is, it's been proven time and time again since that log, uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity is
2: correct. Um, hey James, can
1: I just can I it, jump
2: in? Just, I, just I don't was, have the raised
1: hand, the button. I don't oh have. Oh yeah, just, just I'll, I'll get to okay. you. Just one All second, right. Greg, if that's okay. Yeah. I just I just wanted to finish this thought that uh, that you know while Einstein discovered this this great piece of logic. Um, you know, maybe it was this this idea of beauty, of completeness, that he was looking for, that drove him to look for that answer. And so, it, it's this idea of completeness that he was looking for something that that was complete. And indeed, during the remainder of his career, um, you know, he was looking for a unifying theory that he didn't find by the time that he uh, by the time that he died. So maybe beauty is something that's outside of logic that drives us to uh, to uh, discovery. Uh, sorry, I'll go to Greg and then to Alex.
2: Greg? Sorry that I don't have the raised hand, yeah. but for whatever no reason. So, yeah, yeah we we'll uh, out.
4: You
2: know, as i reading all this material and uh, think about it, and being, you know, uh, science in my career myself, using a lot of these kind of uh, scientific logic to do things. And I come to kind of understanding logic as a whole, comes back a little bit to Heraclitus, kind of starting with the hint of a logic, he used Logos. And to me, the Logos really is in, in his sense, he seems to divide in two, like uh, so, so many things in, in the ancient Greeks, they always had this uh, the visible world and the invisible world. And then the Logos, uh, to, to, to him seems to be there is order, the logical order of the, the, you know, the, the physical world itself. And then there is uh, order of the logic in human mind. So it is the, the match of the two that allow us to get understanding of it. So in a sense that the, the universe is, by itself is logical. And it's up to us to find to find the, the, uh, the logic of a human language per se, uh, to understand it. So there is a linguistic logic and there is a numerical logic, mathematical logic, and there's a geometrical logic and there's a physical logic. Like, you know, to fit a, 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 a square I mean, a, a, you know, a screw to, to a nut. It is logic because the screw can only fit that, the nuts. That's a physical logic. And you have a geometric logic that certain square can only be fitting for a certain number of uh, triangles. And so it's numerical. So I think the human are limited by our intelligence, even though we have, but over time it's amazing that we're able to devise there's a linguistic logic, the numerical logic, the geometric logic, and so on. And all together, come together, we're able to comprehend this logic of the universe. But that's, that's my view.
1: Thank you. And <laughs> certainly, uh, when you talk about uh, words, math, and geometry, I mean, in my mind, they're all boiling down to symbols at the end of the day, whether we use letters or whether we use numbers or whether we use pictures as we do with geometry there's all this symbology and the symbology has particular meaning. And so th- it doesn't matter how we render the symbology. It's all, it's all leading to some sense of meaning. Um, you know, you, you, you talked about the visible and the invisible um, certainly the invisible. I'm not sure if the, if there's a beginning in, or an end to the invisible, we wouldn't know that, but you know, this, this idea of the invisible maybe as being kind of potential So everything that's visible contains a logic, but maybe the invisible is the potential of what we can make with that logic, the meaning that we can make with that logic. I just wanted to—I've got Alex, and but I just wanted to make one point uh, before Alex, and then JK. um, You know that we talked again. uh, We talked earlier about the uncertainty principle. Uh, I should maybe mention Gödel's incompleteness theorems, which I would love to learn more about. Um, if anyone here knows, knows anything in particular about Gödel's incompleteness theorems, uh, I just thought that was an interesting point to bring out about uncertainty in the universe, is that there is this idea of incompleteness. And Gödel's logic, I think Gödel was a mathematician, and uh, he used a diagonal argument to prove uh, that logic is theoretically incomplete. Um, that's my understanding of his incompleteness theorems. And so that's an interesting aspect of the universe that was defined, you know, probably about 2300 years after Plato wrote the Timaeus. So I'll uh, move with that to Alex and then to JK. Alex?
6: Yeah, thanks, James. Uh, just to expand a little bit, I think, on what you were saying last um, about incompleteness and um, I guess I want to bring in, uh, so, in addition to logic, um, another, um, maybe another kind of related topic, which would be ontology, right? So, if logic is how we think, ontology is, well, what is the nature of things? You know, what is being like? And um, I think that might explain maybe some of these differences, because um, as you've been pointing out, you know, today and throughout, um for the greeks you know the world is a kind of unity everything hangs together and i think in many ways we may be living with a very with in in a way the opposite ontology you know our understanding of the world seems to be very much you know uh fragmentation uncertainty incompleteness um so i was thinking uh As people have been talking about, um, you know, when uh, the incommensurables were discovered back in ancient Greece, uh, I think there's sort of a legend that the one who discovered them was kind of ostracized or banished, you know. And somebody probably knows more about this than me. Um, But that's an interesting indication, you know, like somebody discovers this kind of irrational part of the universe and they're just not accepted. And, um, I think today we may in a way be in the opposite situation. You know, if somebody tries to assert uh, there is a unity, you know, everything makes sense. Things are rational, uh, in a way that's the person that gets ostracized, you know, because, uh, pretty much wherever you turn, you see, like, you know, you were saying modern mathematics and logic, Uh, There is this, you know, ideas of uh, incompleteness or um, uh, inconsistency of logical theories. And, you know, you turn to philosophy, you're going to find, especially in the continental European philosophy, you know, all this talk of irrationality, of, you know, things not making sense, of the lack of sense, you know, paradox. And that seems to be kind of the order of the day, you know? Um, and so it's an interesting contrast. Um, I'm not really sure where we go from here. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, yeah. And I think that's reflected in our logic, right? So the logic that we use often is like a logic of paradox or it's a logic of inconsistency or, you know, any theory goes, there are so many different theories and, um, so it's uh, it's an interesting place to be living in, in many ways. Actually, just to say a last thing, um, I think this may be similar to the time when Plato was writing, because uh, when Plato and Socrates actually came about, you know, there were all these sophists around, and there was a lot of doubt um, about you know unity and about the world hanging together. And the sophists were, uh, you know, this figure of sort of, um, uh, you know, man is the measure of all things and relativism and incommensurability and all of these ideas. So, um, yeah, so it's that that contrast between the Greeks and us, I think, is important. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you.
1: And, and certainly you raise a very interesting Question about you know our our state of knowledge or our state of understanding of knowledge at the present time, which I think is critical. I mean, we've got immense technological power, and we're about to develop you know quantum computing technology, which is just you know shockingly immense. Um, it's it's a topic that I have followed quite a lot because particularly because of its geometry. Uh, um, if you look at the Block sphere diagram of a qubit, you will see geometry in there. It's fundamentally geometric. And that's to me a, a, a very important symbolic symbol, symbolic connection to uh to Plato. Uh but you know, I, I find, you know, again that that logic at 28A, this idea that there's these two distinctions, you know, the eternal and the becoming. You know, the eternal is and the, the state of becoming. And I think what Plato's saying here is that. Both of those are in us. And I find that a very empowering idea that we have both that connection to the eternal is and to this constant dynamic state of becoming. And I think, you know, what a beautiful and logical way to construct the universe. That's that's why I love this. That's why I love Plato. And I love this (laughs) Philosophy and, and this discussion, I, I think it's so great. I'm learning so much from from what everybody is saying, and, and so you said it very well, Alex. Thank you. And we'll go to J.K. J.K.
5: Yeah, uh, the interesting issue for our modern time is uh, really a distinction between the sciences uh, that are, you know, dominating uh, with um, with logic, with uh, mathematics and uh, and uh, proofs and so forth and that um, and the attitude that you don't need philosophy and so philosophy uh is you know is really um losing its its uh importance and so is it uh, you know is philosophy different that much different from science you know or or, or is it um you know um does science already include a uh, um, kind of uh, philosophy, you know, the philosophy of science, that uh, that it could understand everything that is to know about our ex- existence. You know, that's that that is the question. I, actually,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. I I like to kind of uh, echo what J.K. said. Uh, yes, it's so true what you say. I've been a scientist and I see so many scientists that have no no clue about uh, where our science came from in, in the first place. And very few really uh, have read uh, anything of the ancient uh, great philosophers like Plato. And I, so all they read is maybe some interpretation, a very short summary of, 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 a, of, a, of a university course, myself included, I mean, until like 20 years ago. like I didn't really have any idea. That where science come from, and only when I dipping into, did I realize there's realms of this knowledge that really is not only funding the science, but really, really is the the the, the fundamental uh, understanding about a good scientist. So I would say that today there are a lot of people claim that they be scientists they are in spirit they are not, they are not the kind of scientists that uh, that in the spirit of what. Uh, um, Plato and Aristotle was talking about, and and that's how, uh, kind of one of the kind of insight that I, I I kind of come to understand by going through this journey myself.
1: Well, thank you, Greg. I mean that's that's a powerful account of your personal journey, and I think it's uh, you know what J.K. said about the the place of philosophy. I think could never be more important than it is now today, especially with what Plato again says at twenty eight A is that. We can only understand that eternal state that is and never becomes. In other words, the eternal state of the universe with a with an account of the reasons why. And it's it's something that resonates, has resonated in me since I read the Mino. I haven't talked actually about our next dialogue that I think we'll do in two weeks. And I, I really want to return to the Mino. I've been re- wanting to return to the Mino for some time. And I think now's a good time to return to it. So I think we'll look at the Mino in two weeks and we'll look particularly at the slave scene that we didn't get to in our very first discussion about the Mino. So this is where Socrates takes the slave who was not, not being educated and does a little bit of geometry with a, with a slave. It's a very easy geometry involving squares in the Pythagorean theorem. We all know this. So I, I think we can look at this. It's a, It's a relatively short dialogue. I think we'll focus on that and and focus on the idea that knowledge is the account of the reasons why and tie it to what we've been speaking about today in terms of logic and, and what Plato says at 28a. Uh, I think it's so key in, in this idea that philosophy, you know, back in Plato's time was the king of the sciences. We, you know, the, you couldn't get better than the philosopher. The philosopher had to be a mathematician, a geometer, an historian, a linguist philosopher had to be all of that and then you could call yourself a philosopher and now it's turned the other way around um you know I went to a presentation at the University of Toronto probably six years ago and there was a very famous what my my favorite philosopher my favorite modern philosopher Re- Rebecca Newberger Goldstein calls him a philosophy poo-pooer and there he was on stage trashing philosophy just you know there's no place for philosophy and science he said Um, and you know that 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 shakes me particularly with the power that we have today so I think it's very important that we understand uh, that there is a place for philosophy and especially for asking the reasons why Um, because if we don't understand the reasons why we can understand the how you know it's uh, modern science is very good at understanding the how but maybe not uh, maybe needs some work on understanding the reasons why. So I think that would be very important. From here, I just, we've got about a half an hour left and I wanted to move to this idea of shape, uh, which really is in the first few pages of uh, of the second part of the time that we're looking at. Uh, so starting at 48A and going through, you know, somewhere in 52, 53, somewhere in there. Um, and you know this is maybe a bit of logic, and so you know we've got we've got this physical universe, and the physical universe is full of shapes, right um, And I just want to ask people how you define shape It's very like how would you define the word shape so so here's Plato describing the construction of the universe in the first half he's put the intelligence in the universe, and in the second half, he starts by talking about the universe of physical shape. And so I'm just wondering, do people have an idea of the meaning of shape? What does shape mean to you? Is it something that exists? Or is it something that becomes? uh, Or is it something else? Um, And then also, I just wanted to discuss this idea of of space, uh, which he talks about as well. Uh, Plato says that Uh, space is a fixed state for all that comes to be, because space is indestructible. Um, So just wondering what people think about that in in the context of the visible physical universe, this idea of shape and the idea of space. And what do these words shape and space mean logically to you? Does anybody have any thoughts based on what you read in the, the second half of the Timaeus? There's a definition of shape that Plato uses in the Mino. Does anybody recall what it is? For those of us who were with us for our discussion on the Mino?
4: The limit of a
6: solid?
1: The limit of, yes, Jose, yes. Shape is the limit of a solid. That's what uh, Plato says in the Mino. And can anybody kind of turn that into a definition, like in terms of what that means? What does that mean, the limit of a solid? Like if I, so Plato talks a lot, a lot in the second half of the Timaeus, I think suspiciously a lot about the word triangle. He mentioned, he goes out of his way to mention triangle many times in the second half of the Timaeus. So
2: triangle is a shape. He was considering, sorry, he was considering triangle as the primary, primary shape. Right.
1: But if, if you go anywhere in the universe, do you find an object that is triangle itself? Or do you only find objects that are triangular? And here we get about meaning and symbology and words. So does triangle on its own exist anywhere in the universe?
2: My understanding from reading it, he seems to be implying um, implicitly that the triangle is the elemental shape of the matter. So he has four elements. The four elements break into infinite small parts. And then the, the, the infinite small parts, the shape of which is a triangle. My understanding. Mm-hmm. So when, No matter how you make uh, other things through becoming a, a
3: being, that at the end of the day, that the infinite element, of a material is a triangle. Mm-hmm.
1: That's I mean that, that to me is what he's saying in in, yeah. in the second half of the Tameya. Certainly certainly that which becomes, that part of the universe that becomes, is based on triangles.
2: And and, and I find it fascinating. I mean may may I may I elaborate a little bit here? Um, um, I, I'm a being a material scientist. I find it's particularly fascinating that uh, at the, that stage, I could say that that literally is the foundation of material science because uh, the way that uh, uh, Plato put uh, these uh, four elements as uh, the eternal one, the, from the, uh, almost the same time as the God itself, it really strikes me that that, that they think the the, the world as uh, things very elemental, the four elements. Now gradually the search for the, for the more elemental thing that breakdown down till what we have is the periodic table made of some 100 elements and still elemental. So material science today is still in a way elemental. Thinking of the, 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 the periodic table, the gold, the, the, the silver, the hydrogen and the makeup of these elements made of this. But, the, the chain of sorts, the paradigm was set at the time. Okay. I find it's fascinating. And secondly, I think that by doing so, I'm also fascinated to see the set of vocabularies that he used to, 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 to describe this material world. That is the foundational set of vocabulary we still use in material science. Mm-hmm. You know, division, composition, a continuity, and all that. And then and then also another thing I find is that this. This is called the, the motion is come from non-homogeneity, non-uniformity, and which really implies some seeds for the later on, the precipitation of the second law of thermodynamics, you know, the chaos, the, the you know, the, 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 the direction of motion. Like it's come from the, the uniformity. The, 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 the end is always uniform. And anything non-uniform will create a motion. And that's basically one of the conclusions of a second law. I find that that's very, very fascinating. Anyway, that's a few few kind of thoughts that uh, come from being a, a material science myself.
1: Well, thank you for for sharing that knowledge and and that experience. And and certainly, I mean, you bring the second law of thermodynamics thermodynamics which is a key law to understanding time i mean time only works in one direction and that it it can never violate the second law of thermodynamics which if i'm to if i if i'm summarizing it correctly is just basically saying that everything physical comes to a state of equilibrium in entropy Mm. uh and and reaches that point of uniformity that you that you mentioned, and that that's so key to understanding the physical universe that Plato is describing the construction of in the second half of the Timaeus, and to understanding the nature of time. And Jane has referred to the nature of time a few times in this discussion, and I think it's important to keep that uh, idea in mind in terms of the nature of time as being this eternal uh, moving image, moving in accordance to number. Uh, and certainly in the physics, uh, the, the geometry, the mathematics, uh, everything does seem to move according to number. And so, a very important concept there that uh, that we we can't forget. Um, and I think you know again this idea of of shape, uh, you know the, this this world of shapes that we live in. These shapes always coming and going, and you know anything physical. Is subject to this idea of entropy. It will, it will all reach a state of entropy, which is this, this state of uniformity uh, at the end. But we, we have this state of becoming, which is the dynamic state where we can change the shapes. And I think that's that's really kind of an empowering thing, as as you know, beings such as we are, that we have this power, this dynamic power in the present to change the shapes around us. Um, you know, whether, whether we can change a shape individually is sometimes subject to physical limitations. Like I'm only, I might be very strong, but I'm not strong enough that I can knock down a whole building. You know, Superman can do that, but, uh, or Wonder Woman can do that, but I can't do that. Uh, But collectively, collectively, we have shaped an entire planet. You know, humans collectively have you know, shape the entire landscape of the earth, we've built cities, we have changed the courses of of rivers, and we've caused all sorts of changes to the shapes of this planet around us. And so I think this idea of shape that Plato brings forward in the second half of the Timaeus is very important to, to understanding our position and the position of the intelligent beings within, within this universe and, and the power that we have to shape it. Um, so a very important question, and maybe just um, you know maybe this as we're getting about twenty minutes to to closing, this would be a good time to put that uh, that second slide on the on the screen. And so this is going back to uh, a point that was made uh, in the first half at thirty one c to thirty two a, and I have paraphrased here my understanding of those sections. And I've used uh, an axiom from Euclid. Uh, So to paraphrase the words that Plato said, using the words of Euclid, things that are like one thing are like each other. And then to tie it to what Plato says in the second half of the the Timaeus at 50D, uh, we need to keep in mind three types of things, that which comes to be, that in which it comes to be, and that after which the thing coming to be is modeled, and which is the source of its coming to be. And so here we're talking about the cause of of coming to be. And so in in the first part of the Timaeus, we looked at the the idea of same, different, and being. Um, We looked at that in the context of the uh, quote at uh, 35a to b, in which Plato writes, the components from which he, the the maker or the framer or the the demiurge, uh, made the soul and the way in which he made it were as follows. In between the being that is indivisible and always changeless and the one that is divisible and comes to be in the corporeal realm, he mixed a third intermediate form of being derived from the other two. Similarly, he made a mixture of the same and then one of the different in between their indivisible and their corporeal divisible counterparts, and he took the three mixtures and mixed them together to make a uniform mixture, forcing the different, which was hard to mix, into conformity with the same. Now that he had, um, now when he had mixed these two together with being, and from the three had made a single mixture, he redivided the whole mixture into as many tasks as it, into as many parts as his task required. Each each part containing a mixture of the same, the different, and the being. And then he talked about some proportions in the remainder of that quote. So I just thought I would remind that that's where we started uh, two weeks ago was with that quote from 35A to 35B. And I think Jane picked up on that in our last discussion in uh, in trying to place the soul in this context of same, different, and being. And so here I thought it would be interesting to just take a look at this idea of of what Plato was talking in the first half and to tie it to the second half. And Eva, if you could just scroll down just one line on this slide. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, So at, at the beginning, you know, Plato says that there could be two things. And so I just, put on this slide two things, uh, two lines. One, so for the uh, benefit of our viewers not seeing the screen, so there are just two lines in this image. One is vertical and one is horizontal and they're separated by space. And so it's kind of the space makes them two separate things. So one's a vertical line and the other is a horizontal line. And so you have two things, two separate things separated by space. And then this idea that Plato talked about in the first half of bonding them together. And so in the second image on the screen here, all I've done is I've just moved the two lines together. So we still have a vertical line and we still have a horizontal line, but they're now joined. There's no space between them. So we've removed the space. And so we put this bond and I've just drawn a bond with a red dot. And, you know, as I look at this image, I wonder, is this now one thing we have a vertical line joined with a horizontal line. Does it form one consistent unit? Uh, Or is it actually three things in in the sense that we've got a vertical line, we've got a a horizontal line going off to the right and a horizontal line going off to the left. So we've kind of got three different directions here. So we've got a vertical direction, a right direction and a left direction. And all we've done is just move them together. We've got rid of the space and we've joined them with this red dot.
2: My am on this two figures from the what uh, what uh, I read from Timius. Mm-hmm. It seems that uh, Plato was meant that bound to be the space. Therefore, if that were the space, then the two things on the left hand and the right hand are the two different kind of uh, setting. They are both bound space. The first one is bound space with a gap between the two things. Mm-hmm. And the second one, they're bound by the space without a gap. But they are now two different things. So the space is the bond. That's my understanding. Yeah, you,
1: you raise a good point. And, and certainly Plato makes this comment about space being that which fixes things. Space is, you can never divide space. So space, you know, as you as you're saying, is is kind of part of that bond. And then, Eva, maybe if you can just scroll down to the bottom half of this slide. And in the bottom half, uh, I've drawn a triangle. So all I've done, and this is really just to get us to where Plato was talking about triangles all through the second half. So if you can just scroll down to the uh, bottom of the triangle there. That's good. And let's get those two quotes in there as well, Eva, if you can scroll down a bit more. Perfect. So here we still got the same vertical line joined to the horizontal line with that same red dot as the bond that joins them. And all I've done here is I've added the, uh, the hypotenuse. So I've made it into a triangle. So, and then I've just reminded everybody, and I think, you know, we all learn, I can't remember what point in school I learned, I think it was probably in elementary school, uh, the Pythagorean theorem. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. So I've just labeled the vertical line I've labeled A, the horizontal line uh, in each half of the horizontal line I've labeled B, and the hypotenuse uh, is C. And so we have a triangle. Now, I've just put a few quotes here from the second half of the Timaeus. The first is at 53D. Now, everything that has bodily form also has depth. depth. Depth, moreover, is of necessity comprehended within surface. And maybe, Greg, here we can think of surface as being space. And any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles. Every triangle, moreover, derives from two triangles, each of which has one right angle and two acute angles. And so, this is what Plato says at 53d. And we can see in this diagram what he's talking about. The right angle is where A joins B. It joins B on the right-hand side, it joins B on the left-hand side. So there's a right angle. Right angle is 90 degrees. Pi over two, 90 degrees. And then the second quote that I thought was relevant to this is at uh, 62D to 63A, and I'll just read it out. For given that the whole heaven is spherical, all the points that are situated as extremes at an equal distance from the center must, by their nature, be extremes of just the same sort. And we must take it that the center, being equidistant from the extremes, is situated at the point that is the opposite to all extremes. So here we get this idea of opposites. If further, there is something solid and evenly balanced at the center of the universe, it could not move to any of the extreme points because these are all alike in all directions. And so I just wanted to, you know, maybe in the time that remains, um, ask everyone here, you know, because, again, I just I I tend to think in pictures and, and, you know, pictures are just symbols like words and, and numbers, So when I'm looking at this picture, I'm trying to think of the same, the different and being. And I'm just wondering if you were to place in this little geometric triangle here, if you were to indicate which is the same, which is the different and which is being, uh, I'm wondering which of these letters you would apply to each. So again, we've got uh, for our, our listeners who can't see this, we've got a triangle, we've got the the base of the triangle, each half of the base labeled B, we've got the the leg or the height of the triangle labeled A, and we've got the hypotenuses labeled C. So we've got a right angle triangle pointing to the right, and we've got a right right angle triangle pointing to the left, and they're joined at the middle by this red dot. And so if you were thinking of the same, the different, and B being, which Plato talks at thirty five a to thirty five b as this mixture, like this this insanely difficult mixture it is to create to, to bond together the same and different and to put it together in being and to kind of create this dynamic universe in the process. Where would you say in this diagram, does anybody see the same? Does anybody see the different? and does anybody see being? Any thoughts on that? Jane, I know you asked about I think you, you you raised this point in in our last discussion two weeks ago. I, I thought it was very important, and it just what you said made me made me draw this. I, I think it's I think it was. I think there's a lot of relevance to what you asked, and I'm just wondering if
3: anybody sees that. Any thoughts, Joel? As as I view this, I would see A as being same. I would see B and C as being different but equivalent. If that okay. makes any sense? Okay. And where you have a red dot, I would visualize a red dot at the other end of that line as well on A mm-hmm. and consider both of those red dots as being.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay. I,
3: don't know, I don't know why I say that, but mm-hmm. that's just how it strikes me. Mm.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. So, so Joel has referred to A, which is the vertical line that divides this triangle into two, as the line that he would call the same. And he's uh, pointed to the base of the triangle, which is labeled B on either side of A. Uh, as the, um, you were saying that was different, I think, Joel. I would say different, but equivalent. But equivalent. Yes. Different, but equivalent. And then being you were saying is, were you saying it's bounded by B and C?
3: So no, B no, being based and C being the hypotenuse? No, I would say being would be bounded by B on its lower, uh, base mm-hmm. by and bounded by c a and c on its upper extremity okay i would consider both of those points being right which are uh, are of our equivalent or which are ends of the same right <laughs> and does that make any sense <laughs> at all i don't know you know,
1: it, it's, I, I, I like your logical approach. I think it's making, I think it's making sense. Um, Jane, what are your thoughts on this, Jane?
0: Um, Okay, first of all, I wanted to, um, I, I, get, I don't know if it's like a question or a comment, but in, in my, like in the dialogue that I was reading, instead of being, they had the word essence, so there's the same, the other, and the essence, so I don't know, This this always kind of gets me with all um, with all of the dialogue. So if you read different translations, you sort of get a different understanding from each. And so for me, like being is a totally is, is totally different. For me, being is what creates the same the other and the essence. Um, that's just a, a, a quick note. Uh, and regarding the triangle, I, I'm not sure if I would be sure which one is the same and which one is um the other it's it's either the a or the b for me i'll well, um see as being the essence that joins it to create like one unity because when you draw them onto to the um on onto the drawing you sort of get uh, the the unity that one shape. Well, at least that's the way I saw it. And again, I did like geometry back in school. I was good at it at the time, but I totally forgot most of the basics. So yeah, uh, but yeah.
1: Okay. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, we all, we all see, we all see geometry through our daily existence in shape, right? And, and everywhere we go, there's shape. And so, you know, geometry is in, inescapable, I think, for all of us. And so it doesn't, you know, we're kind of all experts in a way that we're we're dealing with, you know, daily existence, and so, um, so yeah, I think that's uh, a key point. I I tend to see, I tend to see see the hypotenuse kind of in the way that you're describing it, Jane, as kind of the bounds of this essence or or being. And thank you for for pointing out that uh, difference in the translation of the word being, uh, in in the verse that you're using. So I kind of see C, which is the hypotenuse of the triangles, uh, the right angle triangles being kind of the boundary of being. Uh, and, and Greg, maybe to answer your point about space earlier, I see the space that's comprised within the triangle that's bounded by B at the, at the base and C in the hypotenuse. I see that as, the, uh, as what's contained within, within this logical structure. Um, I have uh, J.K. J.K., your thoughts?
5: Uh, yeah, it's, um, to answer the question of uh, that you're asking, uh, would you have to understand how this triangle fits into the sphere, into mm-hmm. the circle? And then the extremes would be the, uh, you know, would mm-hmm. be the um, the parts inside would be. I mean,
1: the a squared plus B squared equals C squared, which is more generalized as AN Plus A to the N plus B to the N equals C to the N when N is constrained to uh, a limit of two or less. And that was proven first hypothesized by Fermat and and then later proven elliptically by Andrew Wiles. So that's a generalized format of it. Um, but I would put out the question, uh, and we can maybe talk about this next time when we come back to the Mino, uh, is where would the soul fit into this? Or does the soul do you see? Does anybody see the soul here? And unfortunately, we won't have time to get into that question, but I would just ask people to think about that. Um, If you were to draw the soul, if you were to impose the soul, perhaps, on this, where would you put the soul? How How would you apply the soul to the same, to the different, and to being? So that's a thought that we can that's a thought that we can ponder on and uh, and think about and uh, maybe probe a little bit further as we consider the theme of the soul, which is all through Plato's dialogues. And as we look at the Mino next time, as, as I said, I think just focusing on the, the slave scene and, and then towards the end where, uh, you know, Plato says that knowledge is recollection, but it's also the account of the reasons why, which I think is very, very much tied to to the whole theme of the of the Timaeus so I think on that point um, I just you know we're we're sort of at the end of our time and I just wanted to thank everyone for being part of this discussion I think we've had a, a great discussion today so many good points brought out I know I've learned from it and uh, I hope everyone has learned from each other which again is you know I think is the whole point of Plato is that we in the course of our dialogue we learn things that we didn't know before we continue to derive knowledge we continue to integrate knowledge and uh as socrates says at the end of of mino never cease to ask why and never cease to seek and to learn so i think that's the the importance of what we're doing here together in dialogue and certainly look forward to um to meeting everybody again in 2 weeks and to looking at the mino again. So uh, thank you all for for being here with us today and it, it's been a great day and uh, looking forward to uh, our next discussion in 2 weeks.
0: Thank you for joining today's discussion friends. This was Plato's Pod with James Myers. It's always exciting to hear your comments and curiosity and especially James, thanks for leaving us with the question of where does the soul fit? that would be a challenge uh i am eva Ellis. it was my honor to coordinate this episode of plato's pod today see you at another episode bye